This past week, I was hanging out for part of my quiet time in the Gospel of John and in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, which, as you may know, is a chapter in which John shares with us the prayer that Jesus prays on the night before he is crucified there in the upper room as he's with his disciples. And in that prayer, Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples who are with him in the room, and he prays for you and me in that. It's just an awesome chapter, great place to have a quiet time. And as I was reading out of John 17 this week, I came to verse 11, which reads like this. I'll put up on the screen for you. I am no longer in the world, Jesus says, but they, those who love me and follow me, they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your, what? In your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Keep them in your name. As I was reading, it was like those five words just reached out and grabbed my heart and drew me in. Suddenly, that request that Jesus was making was was just very personal, very meaningful to me. And I knew instantly why that was true. It was true because of where we have been here on our Sunday mornings together, sharing the great names of God together from week to week. Keep them in your name. Jesus prayed. If you have been with us over the last many weeks, you know that we are sharing a study series together called God Also Known As. And we are in this study series giving our time to learning about God, his nature, his character, his his involvement in our lives by taking a close look at just some of the many, many names that God has taken for himself in the pages of Scripture. God goes by literally dozens of different names in the Bible, and each one of those names is a window into his person, just like we were singing that song a moment ago. What a beautiful song, and it just reminds us that each of those names lets us know something about God. And since every one of those names reveals something new to us, it's it's interesting that as we study those names, we find that often God will unveil a new name in his word Uh, in the moment that his people are going through a tough time or a difficult situation. And so there's a subtitle there at the top of your little note page, Strength from His Names for Life's Toughest Stuff. And again, it's just like Jesus prayed. Father, I'm I'm coming to you, but but my followers are in this crazy, dangerous, fallen, sin-infected world. Keep them in your name. We could even make that plural, couldn't we? Keep them in your names. So far, uh, if you've not been with us, we have shared five of God's amazing names together in this series. The first one was Elohim, God who is my strong, powerful, infinitely more creator. And then the second name was Yahweh, my personal, relational, promise-keeping God. The third name we looked at was Adonai, God, my great master, the owner of my life. You call the shots. And then it was Yahweh Ra, the first of of many compound names that God goes by in Scripture. And that name means my Lord who lovingly shepherds my life. Yahweh Ra. And then last time it was Yahweh Shalom, 
the Lord who is present in my life, and because he's present in my life, I have his peace. Shalom. Five fantastic names that we can call on at any time, but especially at those times when we're facing perhaps something that that just seems impossible to us, or maybe uh, we feel like we're alone, or uh, maybe no one cares. There's names that we've looked at that move in those directions. We need direction. We need we need someone to lead the way for us. We call on on Yahweh Ra, the the shepherd, to do that. Or or when fear and anxiety threaten to to steal our peace, what name do we call on? Yahweh Shalom. Yes, there is a name of God for every one of those situations in our life. Which brings us today then to a sixth name, the name Yahweh Nisi, as you see it there at the top of your page. The Lord who is my banner. Now this is a great name, brothers and sisters, when we feel that we are being threatened, we're being attacked, we need protection, we need deliverance from a dangerous adversary, when we need victory, but there's nothing in us to secure that victory, this is the name we call out on. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord who is my banner. This is a great name of God and one that I hope will come to be used by you and you'll put it in your pocket and you'll pull it out and use it often in your relationship with him, especially after after we unpack it together and you get to see the richness of this beautiful name. Well, I've got your uh, attention in uh, Exodus chapter 17. I'd like to just read the passage from which this name comes from, beginning in verse 8 and going to verse 16 of chapter 17 of of Exodus. And so uh, let me do that. You follow along in your Bible, and let me introduce you to this name and the context out of which it comes. And in this scene, Israel is out in the wilderness. They're making their way from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And so they're out in the desert. And this is what happens. Verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, and it has the staff in it, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary so that they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my what? My banner saying, I, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And we'll stop right there. And we invite you, Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, to, to join us in this moment and reveal the truth of this name for us. By your Spirit, 
Take us into its richness. Let us see you this morning in this great name. And we all say together, amen and amen. Now, we're all familiar with banners, right? We, we have an idea what banners are all about. We see them everywhere uh, at the roadside fruit stand or at a car dealership or in a department store. In fact, we've got banners right here in our room, don't we? In our church, we've got four banners right here on the wall. And those four banners uh, capture our life acronym, the kind of the, 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 the word that just kind of pulls in life at IBC, loving God together, investing in each other, finding places to serve, and enlarging God's kingdom. That's what we're about here, right? Those banners capture that for us in, in kind of a, in a, in a, in a short version way. We understand the word banner, but to understand the word in relation to God, we need to sharpen our focus a bit as we think about this word. Most of us have at one time or another watched the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games, either on television or in person. Is that true? Can I assume that for most of us? Yeah. And we know that in the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games, uh, there is a, a, a key moment called the Parade of the Nations. And every competing country enters the stadium, marches in around the stadium with a sign or a pole on a pole with the country's name on it leading the way. And, and then right in front of that will be the country's uh, athlete of choice who is carrying what? The national flag of that country, right? We're very familiar with this scene. The moment that that country enters the stadium, everyone from that country stands up and they cheer. And when they see their nation's flag at the, at the front of their contingent of athletes, there is this, this sense of pride and, and tradition and ownership. This is our country. That's our flag. That flag symbolizes and it, it captures everything the, the, the love and the, and, and the essence of what that country means to the people. Everything that they value, its history, its, its power, its ability to defend and to protect, that flag ignites just a flood of emotions. And we understand this. You and I understand this. When we see our flag, the good old red, white, and blue, we feel that, don't we? We feel those emotions, don't we? Don't we? Okay, great. We should feel those kinds of feelings, right? A lot of lives have been sacrificed to make what, what that flag represents possible for you and me. We see it and we feel gratitude for all that we have, our national life, our stability as a country, our security, our safety, our confidence in the face of danger. That flag represents that, that safety, a hope, uh, hope of a bright future, it's all there in that symbol of the flag. One of the iconic images that came out of 9-11 was this particular image, which I know you have seen before. You don't need any words when you see that picture, do you? No words are needed. This says what we felt on that day, what we still feel today. We are covered by this great symbol, our flag. In fact, we don't call it the flag. We call it the star-spangled what? Banner, right? We use that word. A banner seen in this way has meaning behind that that evokes all of these emotions, the feelings of pride and, 
and safety and protection and security and power, uh, confidence that victory will be ours and that, that we have a future that's bright. We fly it in front of our schools, we, in our government buildings. We paint this, this flag on our fighter jet wings and on the sides of our tanks and our battleships. Our soldiers wear this symbol into battle on their, on their shoulder. They carry this symbol into battle because it evokes pride and passion and, and courage. All that it represents is behind the soldier, and the soldier's fighting for what it represents. The flag is our banner. We see it, and it means so very much to us. Well, that was same. That, that, that truth was the same in the Old Testament as well. Only in the Old Testament, the people didn't have banners or flags made of cloth like we are used to. They used a pole or a rod to which was attached at the top some kind of a symbol, uh, something sculpted like a, like a bird or a bear or a lion. And that object atop that, that pole for that people represented exactly what the star-spangled banner represents for us. We call these, these poles with these objects on the top, we call them standards, but it is the equivalent of a flag. We read of how Israel came out of Egyptian slavery and they marched towards God's promised land. In the early chapters of the book of Numbers, we're told that the people, the 12 tribes of Israel, each had a standard. Uh, with their object on the top that represented their tribe. And, and that standard went before them as they moved through toward the promised land. And, and at night when they camped around, uh, they would camp around their banner, their standard, a pole with this symbol on top of it. The Hebrew word for banner actually comes from a root word that means the shining thing. And that referred to the object that was on the top of the pole. So, so for Old Testament Israel, a standard was the banner, like our flag is the banner for us. It represents their way of life, their values. Uh, it represents power. It represents security, safety, strength, protection. Every time they look at it, those are the things they felt. Now take all of that that I've just shared and think in one more direction with me. In the account that we just read from Exodus 17, Moses has a shepherd's staff in his hand in verse 9. Did, we, did you notice that? And I don't know why this is, but does that guy look like Charlton Heston to you? Yeah? <laughs> why is that? Why is it that, that Moses kind of always looks like Charlton Heston? I don't know. But really, for us to understand and appreciate this next name, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord who is my banner, we need to understand something about this staff that Moses has in his hand called the staff of God in verse 9. The staff in Moses' hands doesn't look like a flag. It doesn't look like a standard either that, that would evoke pride or give security. And yet this simple shepherd's staff will come to symbolize for Israel the very presence, the very power of the God of the universe. This stick is going to do that. We first encounter this staff in, in Exodus chapter 4. You remember the moment. Um, Moses is standing before a burning bush. God has met him out in the desert. 
in front of this burning bush. And God commissions Moses in that moment to lead Israel out of Egyptian slavery. Moses has his doubts, though. He doesn't think that he's God's man for this task. And so in this moment, uh, as proof that God is with him, it is going to go before him and that Moses will have God's power behind him, God tells Moses to take the staff that he has in his hands, plain old shepherd's staff, and throw it on the ground. And when he does, what happens to the staff, if you know the story? It turns into a snake, doesn't it? Immediately, God transforms the stick into a snake. Moses runs from the snake. God says, get back here. Grab the tail of that snake. Moses obeys, grabs the, ta- the, the tail, and it turns back into a staff, right? We know the scene. That was a teachable moment, <laughs> to say the least, for Moses. Because in that, God was saying this, verse 5. This is so that you may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. I am, I'm, I'm doing something special with this staff so that whenever you look at it, it will remind you of me. From then on, whenever Moses held up that staff, man, he was reminded, this is the power and the presence of God. And so immediately Moses takes the staff, he goes to Egypt, and with that staff he brings about the plagues that, that would break the grip of the Egyptians upon Israel. With that staff he strikes the waters of the Nile River, and what happens to the water? It turns to blood, if you remember the story. He raises his staff over the Red Sea as, as Israel is trying to flee from Egypt, and they're backed against the Red Sea, and what does Moses do? He raises that staff up over the the Red Sea, and what happens to the water? It just parts, and Israel goes through. All two million Israelites pass through the water. They get to the other side, and Moses turns around, lifts the staff up over the waters, and what happens to the waters? Mm, they come crashing back in, and they utterly wipe out the Egyptian army, bury them, drown them. When the people march into a dry, barren Sinai desert after going through the Red Sea, Two million Hebrews are suddenly without water in this parched place. What happens? Well, they complain. God calls out to God, uh, or Moses calls out to God, and God says, Moses, take your staff and strike that rock. And when he does, what happens? Water gushes out of that in such volume that 2,000 or 2 million uh, parched throats are quenched. And we read about that moment actually in the first seven verses of the chapter that we are in right now, Exodus 17. Now, when we think about all of that, we could think, man, what a magic wand. But I would encourage you, do not look at the staff of Moses as though it were a magic wand. It must not be seen that way. It should, though, be seen as a tangible, visible symbol representing the holy hand, the powerful, awesome arm of Yahweh, the promise-keeping God of Israel. He's going to provide for them. He's going to rescue them. He's going to deliver them. He's going to fight their battles for them. He's going to be with them. And that staff says to everybody who looks at it, Yahweh is for us. Yahweh is with us. And so Moses' staff becomes Israel's banner. It becomes their quintessential standard, their flag. It symbolizes for Israel 
the very presence and power of God. So do we have all that? We kind of got that picture now of what this staff is and what it represents. Verse 8, chapter 17. This verse describes the latest threat that Moses and the people have to confront. An enemy is coming against them with deadly intent. Israel's out in the middle of the Sinai Desert at a place called Rephidim. And we'll put a map up here for you and just show you quickly where they are so you can orient yourself geographically. Up there in the corner was the place that they were slaves, Goshen. Uh, God releases them by the plagues. They make their way to the Red Sea. The miracle happens there. And now they're moving south. And right here in the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula is Rephidim. I mean, it is out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so that's where this scene's going to happen. Unprovoked, they are attacked by the Amalekites, we're told. Now, the Amalekites are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. The Israelites, all two million of them, are descendants of Jacob. That means that the Amalekites are attacking their cousins. Kind of in a distant way, <laughs> but, but cousins nonetheless. But the Amalekites don't care about that at all. They don't care about the family tree at all. So picture the scene. Up to two million Israelites are now in this place called Rephidim, and the Amalekites attack, and, and the Amalekites have gone out of their way to come after God's people because the Amalekites live up there in the north in Canaan, and they have come all the way down to the south to wreak havoc on Israel. In fact, we would call this today what the Amalekites are trying to do. We would call this today a preemptive strike. They want to take Israel out before Israel heads north up into Canaan and tries to take their land. The preemptive strike. And we know that they, what they did, we know exactly how they approached Israel in this moment, what their strategy was, because Moses writes about this in another book, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. We'll put this up on the screen for you. Here's what Moses writes about the moment that we're sharing out of 17 of of Exodus. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out? They met you on your journey and cut off all who were what? Lagging behind. In other words, the Amalekites ambushed Israel and, and ambushed the stragglers, the old, the infirm, those with, with small children who couldn't travel so fast. And so they're at the end of the, of the entire group, and, 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 and they're, they're ambushed. And so the Amalekites are taking out the weakest, the most defenseless, the most helpless. And keep in mind that Israel here in this moment is hardly what we might call a formidable fighting machine. This is a, this is a bunch of slaves. They do not have an army. They are untrained and untried. They really don't know even who they are yet. That's all kind of just happening for them. They, they, They don't even know where they're going. Quite honestly, they're just trying to mind their own business, just figure things out in the moment, and survive. That's all they're trying to do. And here come the Amalekites to to wipe them out. However, it will be on this day in Exodus 17 that they are going to discover that they have a banner. 
They march under a banner that is more powerful than the banner of any other nation on earth. They march under the banner of one who is more powerful than any power in the universe. And they're going to learn about this today. They march under Yahweh Nisi. And they on this day are about to discover what that name means for them. God, their protector. God, their victory in battle. So the Amalekites declare war on Israel. Now this is the first nation to do this, to declare war on Israel. Egypt, when they were coming out of Egypt, Egypt was just simply trying to protect their assets. They didn't really try to declare war. But the Amalekites, they declare war on Israel. First nation to do that. Little did they know that when they did that, God declared war on them. (laughs) This is the first nation that God declares war on. How would you like to have that distinction in your, your history as a people? But this, is, this will set the tone for the rest of Israel's history, for the rest of her story. God declares war on any nation. Listen to this. Any nation that declares war on Israel. Do you agree with that? Man, that is a truth. And he's always done that. And he will always do that. Why will he always do that? Declare war on a nation that declares war on his people? Why does he do that? He does that because he has a plan and he has made promises to this people and he has a purpose for their na- this nation that is ongoing and it's unfolding even today, right? Well, I'll tell you what, I pray and I hope you pray that we as a nation never declare war on Israel because, man, if we do, we are done. We are toast. Verse 14, God says to Moses that he will wipe out all memory of the Amalekites as a people for attacking his people on this day. You think God's taken this seriously? And true to his word, uh, the, the, the last survivors of the Amalekites will be wiped out in the book of Esther. But that's for another time. That's another story, another time. When Moses sees that his people are being taken out, he, 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 he no doubt under divine supervision lays out a strategy for dealing with this attack. He calls to himself Joshua. Uh, this is the first time we're introduced to Joshua. He is Moses' personal attendant, and he says to him, Choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline that phrase, circle it, highlight whatever you need to do so that you do not forget that. I will go out to the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. I'm going to take the Nisi and stand on that high hill over there while you, Joshua, go into the valley. You engage the Amalekites. Verse 10, So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So while Joshua is leading the battle below, These three, Moses, Aaron, and Hur, are battling from above, but not with swords or shields or or spears or bows. It's really quite the scene. Verse 11. As long as Moses held up his hands, and he's got the staff in his hands, as long as he held his hands up, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. 
with the staff in his hand, which is, is, has been this repeated demonstration of the power and presence of God both to Moses and to Israel, with the staff in his hand raised up, God is once more saying without words, my people, Israel, I am with you and I will be your protection, your deliverance, your victory. I am your banner. Look to me. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to the soldier on your right or your left. Don't, don't, don't look at the circumstances that you are in in this moment. Look at me. They are no, you are no match for those forces coming against you by yourself. But I am. And so you look to me. What happens in the valley depends on what's going on up on the hill. What you do with me up there affects what happens down here. As Moses lifts his arms high, staff in hand, banner in hand, in a posture of praise and adoration, in a posture of, of, of submission and, and humble acknowledgement of God's preeminence as the commander-in-chief over the, the, the people of Israel, uh, without words, he is calling the warriors of Israel who are down below in the valley to look up. He's saying, look up. Look up and understand that God is with you. He is to be trusted fully and completely. Amalek has declared war on you, but God has declared war on Amalek. The staff was Yahweh's pledge of deliverance and victory. All of Joshua's men were to do what the psalmist says in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. We'll put it on the screen for you. How does it read? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the the Lord, Yahweh Nisi, the maker of heaven and earth. When, When they looked up and they saw that staff high, Yahweh exalted, the army down below knew they couldn't lose. But when Moses got tired and his arms fell down, arms grew heavy and he was tired. The staff came down. The banner was lowered and Amalek made advances. The principle could not have been more clear for the, for the soldiers fighting this battle. They were God's soldiers fighting uh, under his command, but he had to be first. They needed to trust him. Their confidence needed to be in him, not in their swords. He was their banner, and with him they would win. If they ignored him, they would lose. Well, this was no mere 15-minute skirmish. The battle goes on all day long, and Moses becomes exhausted, we're told. In verse 12, Aaron and Hur help Moses. They find a stone for him to sit on, and and then they, they position themselves on either side of him, And each one takes an arm and holds it up, right? Can you picture this moment? Yeah? That's quite the scene. Quite the moment. And they steady his arms all the way until sunset. Had they not been there, this story might have had a very different telling. But they were there. They step in when Moses couldn't go anymore. And they make a difference that saves lives and contributes to a crushing defeat for Amalek and a victory for Israel. That's what verse 13 says. 
And then in verse 14, we learn that this was not only a big day for Israel, this was a big day in God's eyes too. Moses is told to write down everything that happened in a book and to make sure that this is not forgotten by anyone, but especially not forgotten by whom? By Joshua. Yeah. Uh, He is to recite this moment back to Joshua to, to speak it into his hearing. In fact, the King James Version captures the idea. Re, re, rehearse it in the ears of Joshua is how the King James re, re, reads there. And why? Why was that so important? Well, that was important because God knows that Joshua will one day succeed Moses as Israel's leader, and it will be Joshua who must take the nation into war and claim the promised land. There are many, many more battles that have to be fought. And Joshua would need this memory and the, the image of the staff. The, the, not because the staff was important, but because of what that staff stood for. He needs to remember the image, the banner who is God, who protects and fights for Israel. That needs to be burned into his mind, into his heart. Protection and victory go with Yahweh. Well, after the victory was won, verse 15 says that Moses built an altar right there in that location and he called the name of it what? Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. Saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And I love that. I love the inclusion of that line. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. This is exactly it. When Yahweh is your banner, it's like you are laying your hand on the very throne of the God of the universe. Just like you would take the American flag. And when you put your hand on the American flag, you are putting your hand on everything that it represents, right? All of it. When you put your hand on that flag and you pledge allegiance to it, and that's what, that's what this moment is, is really capturing. Under God's banner, when you are under his banner, it's like you are laying your hand on the very throne of God. Brothers and sisters, <laughs> is Yahweh Nisi your banner today? It's a great, great name. Check out these two verses from Psalms. They say it so well. Psalm 60, verse 4 You have set up a banner, talking about God, you have set up a banner for those who fear fear you that they may flee to it from the what? From the bow, from the enemy, from the adversary. You've set up a banner. Which banner is that? Well, it's God himself, yeah? From Psalm 20, verse 5, We will shout for joy when you are victorious and will lift up our banners in the name of our God. This morning, brothers and sisters, we all have banners in our lives. Personal banners, family banners, church banners. The question is, are all of these banners under the banner of banners? Who is what? Yahweh God. Is Yahweh our banner church family is he our banner and when we see him and when we think of him and do do our hearts swell with with pride and and feelings of confidence and safety and security do we feel protect protected and and ready for battle because he's our banner we should feel all of that 
when we think of this great name. God's given us this name. Well, there are some great lessons for us tucked away in all of this, and and I would hate for us to miss those truths that just resonated in my heart as I reflected on this remarkable moment. And so we'll just call them lessons from Rephidim. And we'll put out a few here for you to consider, although there would be many others. For instance, near the bottom of your note page, here's a, here's a lesson that came out of this for me. There will always be Amalekites to contend with in your life. Would you agree with that? <laughs> There will always be Amalekites. Though God will extinguish the memory of this people that opposed God and his purposes, they are easily a spiritual equivalent or representation of an enemy that comes against you every single day of your Christian life. What enemy is that? That's Satan, right? It's Satan and the spiritual forces in in that realm. The Amalekites hated Israel. They wanted to destroy Israel. Does Satan hate you? Oh, he hates you with a passion today. Did you know that right this moment, if you love Jesus, he stands before the God of heaven and accuses you? Night and day he accuses you and says you don't deserve to be saved. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. He has sought to undo everything that Jesus has done in your life. Does he prowl around like a roaring lion looking to devour you? Well, you bet he does. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that. Looking to ambush your life like, like a lion, just like Amalek ambushed Israel? You bet. The Holy Spirit warns us about all of this. Ephesians 6.12. We do not fight. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, our battle is not with stuff that we can see, right? Our battle is in the unseen realm. There are Amalekites that come against you every single day. But, oh, don't we thank the Lord for that three-letter word. But we have one who has overcome. His name is Jesus. I don't know what battles that you're fighting today, but I know that those battles are rooted in a realm that is way more powerful than you. But check out this verse, 1 John 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God, that is, put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, overcomes the world, right? And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our what? Our faith in Jesus who is our banner, our Nisi, our faith in Jesus. We look to Him and we're saved. And the promise of God is that when we look to Him as Yahweh Nisi, He supplies what we need to win that day. Do you believe that? How about a second lesson? If you turn your page over. The valley and the mountain must partner together for victory. You know, something I did not mention to you about this moment is that it marks a kind of a significant turning point in how God relates to the nation of Israel. Up until this moment, Israel has pretty much just kind of played the role of passive responder. Moses shows up and says, we're going to get out of Egypt. And, oh, okay, we're going to get out of Egypt. And, And so they follow the lead, and God miraculously protects and defends and supplies everything that they need. And they're just kind of along for the ride. 
Whatever happens, happens. But now, God says, take up your swords and go out and confront this deadly enemy. Now, that's brand new. That's a new way of thinking with God. God is saying, we're going to do this, but we're going to do it together. Now, this is a paradigm shift from, from, for God's people. They are to be proactive, go out and do battle, not be passive anymore, and yet they are to remember that they will never win the battle without God's involvement. Solomon got it right in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle. You get your horse ready for the fight. But remember this. Victory rests with who? With Yahweh. Oliver Cromwell, a famous British general from the Revolutionary War era, said exactly the same thing Solomon said. He just used different words. He said, trust in providence and keep your powder dry. Right? Do these two things. Do what you can do and then realize that that God's going to have to do what he does. Brothers and sisters, how many Christians have you known who respond with, in, in one of two extreme ways when fighting for something valuable such as a marriage or a family or children or a health uh, issue or a work situation or some desired future that they want? How many of you have known the Christian who takes the extreme where they're not going to do anything? They're going to sit back and they're going to trust God and and look at the mountain, and they're not going to do anything. They're not going to take their sword. They're not going to fight. God will fix it all, right? I'm just going to sit back and wait. How many of you have known Christians like that? And then how many of you have known others uh, who seek to win the battle in the valley all by themselves? They never even look at the mountain. They, They look to their own skills, their own willpower, determination, the resources they've got at their disposal, and they pretty much neglect God, and they're going to fix it themselves. Those are two polar extremes, and God is saying, neither one of those is what we're looking for here. This is what we're looking for. Only when we bring the valley and the mountain together do we experience the victory that God wants for us. This moment in Exodus 17, I believe, just screams that truth. As believers in Jesus, as lovers of God, we have a responsibility to do all that we can do in the face of challenges. Yet unless we look to Yahweh Nisi, our efforts will never be enough. And so we can't sit back and do nothing because that doesn't honor God. Nor can we do everything because that's pride and destined to failure. But we can trust him for everything while we do something, right? Yeah. You know, when I think of this truth, I cannot help but think about Peter and the disciples out on Lake Galilee on a stormy night in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus comes to them walking on the water. Do you remember this scene? Amazing moment. Uh, Blows their minds. Jesus is walking on the water. They're in this terrific storm. Their boat's about to be swamped. And and when they see Jesus, man, the fear factor goes up by, I don't know, off the charts. Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, call me out on the water. You remember the moment? Now what happens at this point in Peter's life? One of two things is going to happen. Either he's going to climb over the rail of that boat and walk on the water out to Jesus, or he's going to do what? He's going to stay in the boat, and he's never going to learn anything about what faith really means in relationship to Jesus. 
He has to get out of the boat, right? That's his part. Step over the rail and keep your eyes on Jesus. Or stay in the boat and miss an incredible moment that Jesus has for you. It's that way for you and me, isn't it? We do our part, and God does his part, and together he gets the glory and we get the victory. Great truth, isn't it? Yeah. A third lesson, as I read Moses growing so weary that he can't keep his arms up anymore, which has consequences for those who are fighting down in the valley, it reminds me that we weren't made to go solo. Boy, that's a great truth too, isn't it? Brothers and sisters in Jesus, we have been designed by God to live in a community of believers in Jesus. A community of one another, right? If you've been a part of our church family for a little while, you know we did a whole series earlier this year on, on one anotherism, living out the one anothers of, of the New Testament. This life, this world is too hard for us to do all by ourselves. Moses absolutely had to have Aaron and her holding him up, holding up his arms on this day, or this day was going to go very badly. Are we any different than Moses? Are you any different than Moses? I know I'm not. I need you to hold up my arms. Reminds me of a story that I heard many years ago. I can't recall where I got this. Great story. It involved a, a man who was a Christian who, for whatever reason, decided that he didn't need to go to church anymore. And so he stopped attending. He just dropped out. I mean, just quit right there. His absence, however, did not go unnoticed by his church family. After a few weeks of looking for him, expecting him, and not seeing him, one of the elders in that fellowship was assigned to go visit him. Well, it was an icy, cold December evening, and the elder found this fellow in his home, alone, sitting before a blazing fire. Guessing the reason for the elder's visit, the man welcomes him in, led into a comfortable chair near the fire, and the two of them sat down. And the man was expecting that he was going to be talked about to about why he wasn't at church. But the elder just sat in the chair, and he didn't say a word. And, and this went on for many, many minutes. There wasn't a word. The, the, the conversation was as cold as the air outside. Several minutes passed, not a word. Well, then the elder got up out of his chair. He took the fire tongs, carefully picked out a, a brightly burning ember in the fire, and placed it on the hearth off to the side all by itself. Then he sat back down in his chair, never said a word. And his host watched with curiosity. The lone ember's glow began to dim, and eventually it went dark and cold. The whole time, not a single word from the elder. The elder glanced at his watch, slowly stood up, picked up the cold ember, and placed it back in the middle of the fire. And immediately it began to glow again with all of the light and all of the warmth of all of the coals that were around it. Well, you know the rest of the story. As the elder reached the door to leave, the man finally broke the silence and said, I'll see you on Sunday. <laughs> they hugged, and that was that. 
We weren't made to go solo. Right? Brothers and sisters, we weren't. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says it like this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you what? As you see the day drawing near, as the battle gets more and more difficult, you've got to be together. Lesson four for me. Spend time in the book. That was Moses' counsel to Joshua, wasn't it? Yeah? Yeah. Moses, write this down so Joshua will never forget. He's going to need this information as he goes into future battles that Yahweh Nisi is his banner. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to Israel as an example, but they were written down for who? For our instruction, right? For you and me on whom the end of the ages has come. What God told Moses to tell Joshua, the Holy Spirit told Paul to tell us, be in the book, was written for you. How are you and I going to get to know Yahweh Nisi better and better and better unless we're in the book, right? Be in the book. Hmm. Jesus. Jesus is our banner. That's the fifth truth that comes out of this for me. Our crucified for us, buried, risen from the dead, Savior is our banner. Amen? He is the one that we look to. Our eyes are centered upon Him. No other, only Him. He is more than able to make us conquerors. Because he loves us and we love him, says Romans chapter 8. My personal life banner, my family banner, my church banner, they all need to be under the banner of Jesus. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord who is my banner. Great verse tucked into the book of Isaiah, a verse about Jesus. We're going to end with this thought. So this is a prophecy. 750 years before Jesus comes into our world, this prophecy. In that day, the root of Jesse, who's that? That's Jesus. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be what? Glorious. Is Jesus your banner? Oh, man. Is he your banner? Amen and amen. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord who is my banner, my protection, and my victory. Let's pray. What a beautiful name you have given to us. Heavenly Father, we, we, we put this name in, in our pocket today, and we're going to take it with us, and we would just ask you by your Spirit to, to let us run to this name a lot because there are battles that are going to be facing us the minute we leave this building, we step out into our world The Amalekites will be there. We're going to need this name. Bring it to our mind often. And oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for being lifted up on that cross to be our banner, our banner of life eternal through faith in you. All praise goes to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.